Special thanks to Colin Fagan, Luke McDonald, and Teddy Hardy Lee for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam. This is Jackie. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have queer self-defense and martial arts trainer, Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Hey, Sam. How's it going? So I've spoken to a lot of trainers from inclusive gyms, red gyms, and anti-fascist gyms. But you know, I haven't met a lot of MMA fans. And I think you're the first I've met who's a real MMA enthusiast. That's why I wanted to learn more about your community project, but also talk with you about UFC 250 Nunez versus Spencer. So let's start with this. How did your interest in combat sports start? Um, well, that's kind of a complicated uh, question. I'll, I'll try to keep it sort of short. I don't know. So that's almost like the story of my whole life, right? It, it, it's kind of it's hard to pick like a moment. Um, you know, as a kid, uh, there's lots of interest in martial arts and stuff from cartoons and etc. Um, but uh, it wasn't super accessible, so I didn't really stick with it. Um, and then it didn't seem like something that was very necessary as an adult. Uh, I was training parkour for a long time, and I thought that would be enough to just kind of keep myself out of situations. Um, and then I ended up actually in uh, an abusive relationship and that kind of did a lot of things to me, including, uh, you know, sort of suppressing my personality a lot. And when I finally did have the courage and opportunity to leave that situation, um, I went through a very transformative period where I was kind of rediscovering who I was, um, including uh, coming out as an adult. And um, I uh, decided that uh, martial arts was something I wanted to pursue more in earnest. And uh, also because, you know, it, it felt more uh, urgent to myself personally uh, as a skill set that I wanted to have to be able to physically defend my boundaries or um, protect someone else if I was in a situation uh, that I couldn't just leave on my own. So a lot of people then might just be interested in the self-defense aspect. That's the thing I found with other instructors is they're interested in that or the techniques. They're not necessarily fans of watching MMA or geeking out on jujitsu videos online. So how did you go from just 
an initial interest in self-defense to becoming a fan of combat sports? Um, yeah, I think uh, that kind of came just from um, experience a little bit. Uh, I had watched some MMA uh, in college with some friends. They kind of introduced it to me, but I didn't really appreciate all of the nuance and still I started until I started training and trying to figure it out for myself. And I'm, uh, I've always been very interested in movement patterns and stuff like that. I skateboarded as a teenager. So trying to like analyze and figure out how to perform a movement, um, has always been something that, uh, draws me to things. And so when I started practicing, um, I would say specifically the jujitsu, it just, uh, it really lit up the the problem solving aspect uh, in my brain. Did you find it similar to parkour at all, as far as like the way it made your mind think about problem solving? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, doing other disciplines, there's always a, a problem solving aspect to it, but with martial arts, having another person that you're engaging with uh as a an, a new randomized element to it that keeps you very alert and very engaged and having to constantly reevaluate things whereas with parkour or with climbing or even with skateboarding you kind of have a set line of of motions that you're trying to do and you know maybe in the middle of something you might have to make an adjustment uh on the fly but it's not the same kind of constant um, reading of a situation and, and changing, uh, to accommodate. And so I think that that, uh, really drew me to, to martial arts and kept me engaged in, in that fun way, rather than just the, I need this, uh, to protect myself kind of way. I'd really just fell in love with it. I think you're the first person to mention that because like with parkour or with rock climbing, skateboarding, anything like that, right? These are fixed objects you're trying to circumvent and go around or move on top of. So maybe even if you're unfamiliar with it at first, it's not moving once you're on it. Maybe the skateboard is moving, but the ramp is fixed. The wall is fixed. The holes are fixed. Whereas with jiu-jitsu, all of these things are constantly in motion and in flux. Exactly. And with something like climbing, you can go to a different route and uh, do things differently. Um, and there's that interesting kind of everyone climbs it a little bit differently, but there's not a whole lot of uh, engagement in going back to the same place and doing it over again. And then there's a lot of uh, kind of travel involved in, in finding new obstacles. Whereas with martial arts, it's just another person. You can just be in a room and find infinite possibilities with each other. As a an enthusiast of Eastern philosophy, I've always found with martial arts and especially jujitsu, a parallel with the concept of impermanence. Things are always in flux and you're never going to have the same situation twice. Nothing is permanent. Everything is up for change. And why I find that interesting is because the culture is not like that, right? The art is impermanent. It's always in change, but the culture can get so toxic and have these like absolute ideas about what is correct, what is right, how people should act and be, you know? Oh, for sure. For sure. So it sounds like you had the reverse path to combat sports to a lot of people. What I mean by that is a lot of people 
are first fans of combat sports and then they go train. But for you, you develop your enthusiasm for combat sports after doing it yourself and after trying it and experiencing it. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that I was a fan in that uh, kind of a conceptual way. Uh, you know, I was really into martial arts movies, and uh, you know, Dragon Ball was a big influence when I was younger. But combat sports always seemed like kind of a separate thing to me for a long time uh, until my exposure to MMA uh, as a, a younger adult. Uh, it seemed kind of um, something that bullies do. And I didn't want to be around that. And so in training, your perception of it changed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in experiencing it uh, firsthand, uh, I realized that it, it could be you know, much more than just learning how to um, do violence to other people and much more so about learning how to um, maintain and enforce your own boundaries. And I think that's uh, another thing that I really, really liked about it. Um, again, especially with the jujitsu, uh, just because it's you know something you can practice a little bit more safely with inexperienced people um, that uh, you can it was it was almost like exposure therapy for me, where I'm being put in these situations that feel very similar to the high pressure um, situations I had been in before in real life, but I could kind of flip the script on my mind and push through it and uh, kind of learn that uh, I'm capable of fighting for myself. So that's how you ended up watching MMA and training MMA and grappling. But what made you realize self-defense training in the queer and trans space was needed? So my experience in discovering my own queer and trans identity was very much around the same time that I started uh, training. And so there was this escalated sense of danger for myself and realizing that that was probably very much also the case for uh everyone else in the community um you know i had experienced a lot of uh, gender-based bullying as a kid and didn't really connect that until much later when i was you know going through this kind of renaissance of self-discovery so in some ways it was selfishly motivated in me trying to find training partners <laughs> <laughs> and you know knowing that there was a specific need in the specific area and me wanting to try to bring this uh new love uh and uh, method of you know learning boundary enforcement to a community that i knew desperately needed it and was you know very widely excluded from those training environments like I was. So when I speak to people about starting their own training collective, a lot of people will say, but I'm only a beginner. I can't do that. Because even if you are anti-hierarchy, we still buy into it for martial arts. And maybe it goes back to the movies we grew up on, as you mentioned. But you started your project around the same time you started training. Was there some trepidation on your part about doing that? Absolutely, there was some. Um, like I said, it was it was in some ways motivated by me trying to find training partners. Um, 
but also, uh, you know, I didn't want to position myself as a teacher, uh, as someone who was fairly new to the whole thing. Um, it initially very much was kind of just me creating a space and saying, you know, here's somewhere that we can do this. Um, if you're interested or if you're someone who's queer and already doing this, please come and share your knowledge. Um, we'll, we'll keep doing this. And, uh, there was a, a few people who had some experience that, uh, you know, came through in the early days, um, and have kind of come through here and there, but, um, no one else who really stepped up and said, you know, Hey, I have this experience. Um, I'll, I'll come and train this. And I think that's, you know, largely because if you do have that experience, you probably have a gym that you're in that you feel comfortable in and going to, you know, some white belts basement three times a week is, is not particularly uh, appealing. So it sounds like at first you were just organizing a space and you were looking to do a skill share. Is that how it is years later or is it more of a curriculum now? I definitely have a kind of curriculum that I continue to evolve and add to, but anyone who has experience and knowledge and wants to come into the space and share that is perfectly welcome to as long as, you know, they're uh, respectful of everyone and, you know, the, the space and stuff. Uh, one of the more recent uh, frequent participants has uh, some boxing experience and uh is also a yoga teacher and uh she's you know helped to lead uh some some stuff with that so then it's not just grappling um i teach anything and everything that i know uh, that uh, i feel comfortable teaching jujitsu is certainly the thing that i'm the most comfortable teaching uh, and i have the most personal uh experience with as far as training and uh, also competing but uh, i yeah like I, i'll teach whatever i can whatever i know um that includes aspects of judo wrestling uh, different types of kickboxing um, people will often ask situational kinds of questions and we'll workshop them um i've done some study in knife defense uh you know, I'm, I'm always trying to expand my own skill set so that I can share that with other people um, and and help them work through whatever. But I'm I always try to make sure I'm never uh, giving people a definitive answer to a problem that I haven't you know fully worked myself through or learned from uh, you know, someone who's much more experienced than me. Now, do you cover a lot of actual self-defense scenarios or when you train or teach grappling or jujitsu, do you just train it as the art and allow people to learn the art and apply it as they see fit? It's a little bit of both. Um, I generally will teach, it's mostly jujitsu. Um, and I, I try to, you know, stick to what I really know. Um, but I also try to I try to give people options um, for each of those things. So, for instance, if I'm teaching uh, passing, I'm going to include, you know, ways and scenarios that uh, you might do that 
if someone is trying to punch you or, or kick you or, or what have you. Um, and I always try to emphasize, uh, the goal is to disengage, um, if you can, right. That's, that's the goal in self-defense is to get away safely and minimize the damage to yourself. But if you're in, I don't know, let's say a locked room or in your own home with someone who you live with, uh, you might have to engage a little more, right? Passing in a jujitsu scenario is not something that you're hopefully usually going to have to use because when you're standing up over someone, you can get away from them, but that might not always be the case. And I don't ever want to assume that, uh, that will be the case. So you might be in a situation where you need to restrain them in some way. Yeah. Do you find that teaching has helped your own learning? Oh, absolutely. It, uh, I definitely think that teaching, uh, increases your own knowledge and ability uh, in a much more rapid kind of way. Um, and, you know, part of that is because I'm teaching, or at least I started teaching and I continue to in many ways from instructionals, I'll find DVDs from, you know, various black belts on different subjects and absorb it as much as I can. And then I communicate uh, those details to the people who show up to my program. And that helps kind of reinforce in, in my head what's going on. And then I'll go back and review and, and find things that I missed from those things. And then I'll learn different things from coaches and people that I train with and being able to, uh, take implicit knowledge and skill ability and make it explicit by describing it and communicating it to someone uh, helps your own understanding a lot. And uh, also finding different ways to communicate things to people who have different um, ways that they're better at learning something is really important. So I think my skill set as a teacher has also improved as I've done that a lot. Now, as a trainer, but also a fan of combat sports, do you ever see something interesting in a fight and then show it in class, kind of like a workshop? Oh, absolutely. Um, I try to pull examples from those things. I, but I'm definitely inspired by things that I see in MMA and in grappling uh, situations uh, and then try to add them to uh, my repertoire so that I can communicate them to you know, my students, I guess. Um, I would say uh, seeing how Khabib wrist rides people and drags them off of fences was definitely something that I started incorporating uh, more into the classes because that's not something that you see a lot in traditional jujitsu spaces is just maintaining that kind of uh, top control because there's not a lot of submission opportunities. But that's something that is extremely important in uh, a potential self-defense situation. So you mentioned also having to need training partners. So are you part of any commercial gym? Uh, so in, in that vein, I've never actually trained at a commercial gym outside of like the free week of classes. You know, um, I think when I first started, um, you know, I had gotten some like really, really old school Gracie uh, VHS rips or something like that. Uh, and like kind of started analyzing that myself. And then I uh, took a free class at a, a local uh, 
place I did like I think four sessions and maybe a Muay Thai class as well. And uh I was like, this is really cool. I have to keep doing it, but it's 200 bucks a month. I'm gonna uh use what I've got to buy some mats and uh quit my job as a dishwasher. Wow. So this is kind of incredible because I've spoken to you a lot and your knowledge of martial arts, especially jujitsu, is is quite extensive. So I was assuming that you must be doing the typical like training at a gym somewhere, you know, just nerding out with other people. But you're like old school when there were no black belts in America training on your own and just like kind of self-training with friends and just putting things together and uh, getting good that way. Yeah, I binge watch instructionals like other people, you know, binge watch regular television. <laughs> I do that too. But, you know, I, I probably spend, you know, or maybe not right now, but certainly in the first two years, easily 20 hours a week just watching and rewatching instructionals. Uh, you know, Ryan Hall's stuff was really uh, influential. Um, I think the first one I had was Gracie Combatives, which was great because it was a linear thing that I could introduce uh, other people to while I was learning it at the same time. Um Rob Bernanke's instructionals are really good for conceptual understanding. And then when Danaher started coming out with his stuff, I just have been gobbling that up. So then you're mostly self-study training with partners and then also going to any community training that you can, but then to make sure that you're actually getting better, then you go out and compete. Yeah. Um, try to try to test myself in those situations. Um, I think it's a good experience for anybody uh, who's training to try to compete a few times uh it's a skill set all in its own just managing uh the adrenaline dump and being in that environment and uh the energy you get from other people when you're rolling with them in a competitive setting is completely different than you know even when you're trying to be competitive with the people that you know because there's even within commercial brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms there's like the competition school and the school that's just more about training and it doesn't compete because there are two different skill sets. So the competition school is very good at coaching you for competition and they'll go there and help you through the process. So then for you, being mostly self-study, wasn't that intimidating at first because you didn't have people there to like help you with the competition aspect, what to expect, how to feel? You basically had to be your own comp coach. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I had some people who would show up and kind of help me out, but uh, they didn't necessarily have uh, you know, an intimate knowledge of my game and my skill set. Um, so it's a lot of just kind of picking up on advice from other people, um, you know, connections that I've made online for uh, people letting you know uh, what to expect. And uh, basically just especially the first few times you go out, not to be too hard on yourself for uh, your performance there. Uh, but also, you know, I'm a, a bit of a sandbagger in that I've only got a I got a blue belt after, you know, three and a half years of training and and pretty good competitive success. So for you to be so self motivated to go out and compete, train all the time, watch all the stuff, you must have really developed a love for martial arts and in particular Brazilian jiu jitsu. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I um, I try not to use the word obsessed, but that's you know. <laughs> That's really what what it is. I'm I'm very uh, hyper focused on it. You know, uh, I think 
people when people get attached to it they kind of get that bug of like oh i wish i i, I wish i had done this sooner uh-huh. and it's almost <laughs> like you got to w- make up for lost time so even with starting your training collective to competing then you know there was a lot of intimidation factor at first starting something as a beginner or competing without being backed by like a very prestigious school but sounds like then your enthusiasm and love for brazilian jiu-jitsu and martial arts was so great that you couldn't help yourself yeah for sure and i also think that you know i had other skills that uh, kind of prepped me for being um you know maybe uniquely able to to pick it up certain things about uh jujitsu and martial arts quicker than other people you know i trained parkour for 10 years um i did skateboarding for 10 years before that um and that's a lot of the same kind of uh watching other people do things slowing it down frame by frame uh reading people's descriptions of them on forums to try to like mimic it and so the kind of skills that it it took to uh you know watch and also uh hear how to perform a movement and translate that into my own body movements was something that i had for a a long time as well as um you know just general internet abilities uh to to find solutions to uh the problems that i was uh, looking for do you think it also helped as far as competition goes where maybe especially with skateboarding maybe it's not a huge crowd of people but you're used to doing stuff while people are watching you do you think that helped you prepare for competition at all um yeah that's actually an interesting point um it's very similar to skateboarding in that people aren't actually watching you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, but you think they are yeah exactly you you're you know you go to a skate park and you think oh everyone's gonna think i'm uh you know a big poser if i don't <laughs> you know tear this up right out of the gate but in reality no one's actually watching you so it's very similar in that sense that the pressure that you're putting on is is mostly coming from yourself nobody's really watching you but you think you are but you're in a public space and what's the worst thing you want to do in a public space right if i'm walking down you know a crowded place I don't want to fall because that's embarrassing. But with parkour and skateboarding, there's always a risk of wiping out. And so I'm sure you have wiped out in public spaces. And so what's the worst thing of uh, competition in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Wiping out, you know, really losing badly, right? So I wonder if there's also some of that. It's okay to wipe out in a public space. Yeah, for sure. I think that understanding what failure actually is and and what it isn't uh, is is something that has definitely translated from those things into martial arts, right? If you, uh, I I don't look at losing a match or you know messing up a move or something necessarily as as failing so much as uh, not trying your best is really what's what's failing and not learning from a loss is is what the real failure is if you if you you know lose a match and it's really dramatic or maybe it's not uh, maybe you just got controlled the whole time uh if you come away with that and you're you know making excuses or uh you know not using that as an opportunity to identify a weakness in your game that you can improve upon then that's what's really the the failure a note to our loyal listeners if you love the show 
please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Now let's talk about UFC 250. <laughs> and let's start with the, with the first fight on the main card. Eddie Wineland versus Sean O'Malley, which is one of several bantamweight fights that appear to be an unofficial contenders tournament. Now, this is a fight between a seasoned veteran versus up-and-coming prospect. The end came at 1 minute and 54 seconds of the first round with a Mark Hunt-style walkaway KO by Sean O'Malley. What were your thoughts about how the fight went down and the performances of both fighters? Yeah, this was a quick one, and uh, Sean looked really, really good. Um, I don't think he threw the same thing twice, uh, but even, you know, the same feints, he just kind of did a different thing, a different combination, a different movement at every single step. And it was just really impressive. I don't have a lot of, uh, technical things to, <laughs> to say about that. I really liked the way that, uh, he was framing, uh, on Wineland uh, to throw shots. And I think there was just one moment where he really did that. He did a lot of circling. What do you mean by framing? So he had, uh, I think it was his lead arm, his left hand uh, extended out, uh, framing just like his hand right on his uh, head or neck or something. And just holding that distance as Wineland, I think, tried to get closer um, and just, you know, most people measure distance with uh, kind of a probing jab and he was just right in there almost like a football player like you know putting his arm straight out holding that distance and then uh using that to land a shot after removing that arm oh, okay so like kind of uh, how a football player uses a stiff arm to create distance yeah exactly it looked just like that and then he did the same thing when he uh he threw a kick that missed i think he spun around and fell down and then he put that frame right back up and was able to get up off the ground really quickly did you feel like wineland was doing okay at least in the first like minute especially with his right straight it seemed like i don't know if rocked is the right word but sean o'malley definitely was hurt at one point from a right hand yeah for sure um he did i think it was a pretty good counter that he landed um and it did look pretty stiff but yeah, he was definitely he was definitely in it uh until he wasn't <laughs> i mean it's hard to say it was a competitive fight up until that point because it was so short but you know the first like i would say minute and a half it was competitive mm -hmm. i didn't know who was gonna win it just looked like you know they're both doing stuff then you saw the payoff of everything sean o'malley was doing all the setups he was doing all the feints was setting up the end and you didn't know it until the end came yep <laughs> that was really impressive to your point i think it was ultimately a feint a different kind of feint than one he was using previously that set up the end yeah i believe he showed an uppercut 
and then just went right over with an overhand. So that was a short one. <laughs> Next, we have Neil Magny versus Anthony Rocco Martin. Now, Magny has been trading wins and losses lately, while Martin has been on a bit of a streak outside of a close decision loss to Maya. So this fight ended up being a competitive decision victory for Magny. So can you break down the fight for us? Um, yeah, I could do my best. This was uh, honestly one that I had kind of forgot about until I rewatched <laughs> them this morning. But there was a lot of interesting things that happened in this fight. Magny was doing uh, really good with throwing volume and being really technical. Um, but Martin was really impressive in forcing the clinch. And even when he wasn't the one forcing it, he was still turning it around on the fence and uh, holding Magny up against the fence pretty effectively uh, throughout the whole thing. Um, in the second round, he used that to get a nice big takedown that uh, Magny was able to work back up from uh, and also used uh, an interesting uh, Kimura to escape a back uh, body lock. Uh, I really liked how he disengaged off of that um, rather than you know trying to hold on and commit to it. In second viewing, did you think the fight was a lot closer than the first time you watched it? Because I remember Rocco was very surprised that he didn't win. And I don't know. I mean, it seemed pretty clear Magni won, but you've watched it twice. So what did you think the second time around? Yeah, so in that last round, like if you were judging it as a whole fight, absolutely, uh, the the decision was correct. But it did kind of look like uh, Martin had done enough in the first two rounds to secure at least one of the rounds. Certainly the second round, he got that takedown. Um, he was controlling a lot of the action. I think they gave it to, to Magni for those first two, just out of uh, volume of strikes, really. Like Martin was kind of hitting some bigger maybe more damaging shots but you know that's a very subjective thing you can't really say whereas uh magni was doing a much better job of mixing up with uh the low kicks as well as the the punches um one thing that i thought was really interesting in the last round was uh martin was able to get a uh, a body lock that was almost in the middle of the ring um and uh pushed forward and got a leg reap for uh that would have been uh probably a an, a a clear takedown had the ring been larger but uh since they ran out of space they was right into the the fence and then uh it ended up not working out and magni went right back to doing what he was doing yeah that is the interesting thing about the smaller cage is that we're definitely seeing a lot more finishes and probably uh, less engagement on the ground. And even the ground fighting wasn't really ground fighting. It was like a lot of stuff happened against the cage because they would run into the cage so quickly. Yep. So then you would do a submission or at least a submission attempt without even going to the ground. So to your point then, the cage seems like in a way not as good for ground fighting. Yeah, it definitely presents uh, some new new challenges for that. One of the things that they were talking about during the broadcast is how Rocco Martin had gained some weight. He was in the same weight division, but he had put on more muscle by working with a new nutritionist, uh, maybe a different strength person. And one of the things that the broadcasters kept talking about was how tired he looked. And I wonder if some of that is sometimes when you put on more muscle, you're not so used to fighting with more muscle. 
And is that necessarily, I don't buy into the idea that more muscle means you get tired, but maybe because you know you're stronger now and you have put on some muscle in training, you've been wanting to use your strength a little bit more because you're proud of it, right? Yeah. So I wonder if since he's aware he's gotten stronger, he's fallen in love with his new strength. So he was using it more, which inadvertently tired him out more. Yeah, I definitely think you can make a case for that. He was uh, doing much more explosive movements than uh, Magni was doing, definitely not being as conservative with his energy. And that's definitely dangerous against Magni, who builds over the rounds, and he's known to never tire out. Yeah, he looked fresh at the end of that. Magni kind of reminds me of uh, Michael Bisbing in a way, where he kind of builds over time, he hits you with the one-two, that's like his main thing but doesn't have that destructive knockout power. So do you think Magni's greatest tool is his cardio or does he have more to him than just like an endless gas tank? I think the gas tank plays into his ability to mix things up. You mentioned his one-two being uh, his kind of go-to thing, but he was throwing in a lot of those low leg kicks that we love talking about and his kind of ability to go from high to low with uh, those combinations, I think, uh, fits, it, fits that style really, really well. And I think that's kind of a new modern MMA thesis that people are employing is going high, low, high, low. Whereas before you saw a lot of just headhunting and a lot of people still just headhunt, but some of the newer fighters, they're really mixing things up where they're trying to hit every part of the body now. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I'm really liking that evolution of the sport. So next, we have Aljamain Sterling versus Corey Sanhagen, which could easily headline a fight night card. Both fighters needed this win to say they're next in line for the title. So it's surprising this wasn't the co-main event. Now, this is another fight that didn't last long, with Sterling winning by rear naked choke under two minutes of the first round. So I know there wasn't a lot to watch, but what were your thoughts and impressions about this fight? Well, me being a jujitsu person, going back and watching this, this was actually the one I took the most notes on because there was a lot of really interesting things happening very, very quickly. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it started out, you know, Sterling just came out right out the gate with a ton of pressure, um, mostly with his movement, uh, a lot of side to side, just corralling Sandhagen uh, up against the fence. Again, we saw those uh, low kicks to kind of steer him uh, in the way that he wanted. And then when Sandhagen tried to return fire, Sterling caught the leg kick uh, with that kind of single leg grip and then just pushed him into the fence. Uh, he went right into uh, right up to the higher part of the body to hold him against the fence using uh, a really strong underhook uh, in that clinch. And then he had um, an inside leg that he used to kind of start to trip Sandhagen to the ground. And rather than getting that all the way to the ground, he kind of used that trip motion with his underhook to slip that leg out so that he could then circle around to the back. Once he was on the back, he just jumped the back, which was really surprising to me. Uh, it's not something that you see being very successful um, on standing opponents very often, but maybe just because it was uh, the beginning of the fight and they weren't as sweaty he was able to stay on there but also uh going back and rewatching it he used um a great trick that i've only seen danaher talk about in his uh back instructionals which is using asymmetrical hooks where he has one hook that's 
basically just a foot on the inside of the thigh. And then the other one is longer where you're basically knee deep. And that prevents you from being shucked off the top in the way that most people do when when someone jumps on your back, they kind of lean forward and and kind of try to get you to fall forward off of them. Having those asymmetrical hooks really, really digs you in there so that it's very difficult to to get you off of there. And then from there, he just went right to attacking the um, the choke. He almost had it with that over the jaw, but uh, couldn't quite get his locking hand behind the head, which is super, super essential in MMA with those gloves. Um, it's just really, really difficult to uh, get it tight enough uh, where someone can't peel away your locking hand um, unless you get your hand all the way behind the head. Um, so Sanhagen was doing good defensively. He was doing a lot of things that were, um, you know, the right thing to do. He was pushing up. He got the, the initial choking grip off. It wasn't quite tight enough because of those hand positions. So as soon as Sanhagen was able to get that grip off and he pushed the choking hand off of his jaw, Sterling switched to um, an underhook control on the back. So basically he dove a hand under Sanhagen's uh, bottom side arm so that he can control that wrist. Kind of like what you were mentioning before with Khabib, right? Like kind of a, a wrist ride you're talking about? Yeah, you can do that straight from someone's back. And uh, he, you know, even if you're on your back, you can hold that. And it does a really good job of preventing the person from turning in either direction. Especially if you're on that side, you really need that uh, to prevent their shoulders from getting out uh, too quickly. He was also doing a really good job holding a super tight body triangle, and I don't know how much of a factor that was. But the upper body fight is really where all of the things were happening. So once he got control of that bottom hand with the wrist... He went just straight to striking at the head from behind, which I think is really, really uh, interesting. A big difference, you know, obviously between MMA and jiu-jitsu is those strikes and striking someone when you're on their back uh, does a lot to uh, present an additional threat. So they're having to think about the strangle, they're having to think about escaping the position, and now they're also having to think about getting struck. So there's this triple threat of things that can be happening all at once that you can't even see because the person's behind you. Sterling then pulled him back into a kind of a claw grip. And at this point, St. Hagen had an opportunity um, potentially to get out. He had... Um, can you explain what a claw grip is? So it's basically like... When you're on somebody's back and if they're if your head isn't in the right position, if your head is on the same side as your overhooking arm, you need to correct that head position. Otherwise, there's it's very, very difficult to put a strangle in. And it also the other person can start bringing their head and their shoulders to the mat in a way that's difficult to control. So uh, basically just gripping with your overhooking arm to the back of the trapezius and using that to pull them kind of back on top of you or to shovel yourself underneath so that you can either switch to your other side uh, underhooking arm or to you know grab the wrist on the other side. Um, it, it's just a way to kind of pull the person back on. Um, and you can also potentially use it to switch to an arm triangle uh, if, if things go uh, 
further south. So are you saying then your hand is kind of like grabbing their trap like a claw yeah. to yank them backwards? Yeah. So Sanhagen at that point almost had his head uh, out. Yeah. When I was watching, I thought that's it. He's going to get out. <laughs> yeah. And then Sterling did something really interesting where he started punching him with the underhooking arm. I don't know that I've ever seen someone do that. So the arm that he had the wrist ride on, he started kind of throwing these punches from underneath of Sanhagen's armpit <laughs> up into his head. Like kind of like an uppercut? Yep, just like that. It was like an uppercut from the back, essentially. Just like you're punching yourself in the face, but there's another face in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so he used that as a, a threat to keep Sandhagen's head away from that side where he could have potentially escaped. And that squared them back up to a position where Sandhagen was directly on top of Sterling. Sterling then used that as an opportunity to recapture a seatbelt around him and pull him back uh, into that back control. Sanhagen did a really good job at that point of establishing a two-on-one on the overhooking arm and went to the overhooking side so that he could pull that arm across and start again, almost had his shoulders out there. It could have, could have easily gotten out at that point in a grappling scenario, but I think he was concerned about ending up on the bottom of Mount and getting uh, struck. Sanhagen was, I'm sorry, Sterling was doing a really good job of maintaining uh, height at that position. And so rather than using that two-on-one to try to turn in, he uh, went to his knees. And that's really where the beginning of the end was here. After going up to his knees, he really didn't have anything to defend his neck. Both of his hands were planted and Sterling was able to get uh, that arm fully around uh, the neck and under the jaw that time. And uh, when they rolled back over, Sterling was able to get the, the locking arm in place and notably getting Get got the locking arm behind the head and covered his own uh, wrist with his chin to just get that super, super deep. And then it was it was over. I think another thing that factored into it is something we just already discussed is the smaller cage, because I think Sanhagen was surprised how quickly he got pushed against the fence because it only took like Sterling a couple of steps to get him into the cage. So I think he was surprised that his back was against the fence. And then at that point, when Sterling knew Sanhagen couldn't go backwards anymore, he jumped on his back. I, I don't even think Sanhagen was aware that there was a threat for somebody to jump to your back from only taking like three or four steps back from the center of the cage. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. If you're a person who likes to keep people at range, uh, you have to have an answer for someone who's going to come in and charge you at that smaller cage. You can't just uh, circle step. You have to you have to kind of meet them with something, maybe a, a teep or your own leg kicks or something uh, to to stop that forward pressure. I think also Sterling, recognizing that the cage is so small and they're constantly going to run into the cage, he didn't even drop down for a takedown because he's like, what's the point? They're going to keep wall walking out, right? They're going to just shimmy up the cage. I can't take people down. So I'm just going to jump on the back. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, he had that perfect opportunity where he almost had uh, that trip uh, with the inside leg and then... Uh, when Sanhagen recovered his base, he had still had that underhook and was able to just slip around behind him. The fight reminded me of a situation you see a lot in jiu-jitsu, right? Where you slap hands and roll and you think you're going to flow, but the other person is going 100%, right? Oh, yeah. You think you're going light, but the other person is like, nah, and taps you in 30 seconds. Especially with having his back taken, Sanhagen looked really relaxed. 
And I think even in the round, I think Sanhagen initially, when they were standing, just wanted to feel Sterling out. Whereas Sterling wanted to capitalize on that moment at the beginning of every fight where you don't know anything about each other and was just like, you don't know me, I don't know you, so I'm just going to put you away before you can figure me out. Yeah, yeah, you really have to have an answer for someone who wants to come in and pressure you immediately. It's uh, something you experience uh, as an early jujitsu practitioner and competition as well. You uh, inevitably will come up against someone, especially if you're in the Midwest, uh, who has a wrestling background and has that competitive background and is going to just come out the gate really, really fast. Uh, And if you don't have... uh, something to put up against that if you don't have a wall to put up against that um, and you certainly don't have the space to move out of the way in the smaller cage then uh, it can be really really overwhelming from my first watch it felt like is Sanhagen being too lackadaisical is there no sense of urgency that his back is taken because he looked really calm and relaxed and I was wondering maybe that's why he ended up getting choked because he wasn't taking it seriously enough he's like it's okay I'm fine I'm gonna get out Now, watching it technique by technique, was that the case that he was just kind of too relaxed and not sensing the danger? Or was it just more like Aljamain had an answer for everything Sanhagen was doing and was just kind of confusing him with his level of jiu-jitsu? I really think it was uh, Sterling just out uh, having an answer for everything that uh, Sanhagen was doing. He wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong. he was almost out in a couple places. He had his uh, shoulders, you know, misaligned in a couple places. Uh, but Sterling just really was doing a great job mixing up uh, the positional threat with the striking threat, with the choking threat, and it was—it's uh, just too much. If you watch a lot of MMA fights, right? Normally, some of those positions that Sanhagen put himself in, where he was kind of like in a weird angle, or his head was in a certain position, or he's like pulling away and breaking the hand grips. 90% of the time in MMA, that person gets out. Yeah, most of the time you don't see uh, someone on someone's back until it's much later uh, in in the fight, right? It's because they've uh, gotten to a point where they've you know felt each other out on the feet enough, someone's gotten a takedown, uh, and you're, you've usually done some grounded pounding as well before someone you actually have an opportunity to, to be on someone's back. Uh, but this was so early that, uh, you know, a lot of those other strategies that uh, will work when you're, you know, more slippery um, and, you know, maybe the other person isn't able to be as technical or uh, as strong as they they could be uh, in that scenario just wasn't uh, wasn't available wasn't uh, wouldn't work the same so later on in fights you might be able to get out not only because of the sweat factor so you're able to slip out but the person trying to put the submission on you is is more fatigued at that point so they're not going to be as tight either so it's slipperiness and fatigue of the attacking grappler absolutely now let's get to the co-main event we have Rafael Asensal versus Cody Garbrandt. Now you have the former champion in Garbrandt versus perennial contender Asensal, both now on a losing streak and both in desperate need, frankly, of a win to stay relevant. You could argue this is a loser-leave-town match. Now Cody ended up winning in the final second of the second round with a one-punch knockout. What did you think about this matchup? 
I was really interested uh, to see this matchup. Uh, Cody is one of those fighters that uh, I have followed for a little bit. There's just so much drama and intrigue behind uh, everything in his career that I was really looking forward to seeing uh, which Cody showed up, what he looked like. Um, you know, and it was kind of a, a toss-up. Um, I thought he did just amazing. He looked really, really disciplined. Uh, he's clearly switched up. Uh, some of his uh, coaching staff and uh, it's just looked like he was doing all the right things. He wasn't getting sucked into um, the kind of brawling that he used to usually do when he would find success. He backed off and kept going at uh, his combinations, his feints. He looked fast. He looked uh, like composed, uh, you know, it's a, a Cody that I'm, I'm glad we get to see. Yeah, I think you're basically pointing out what a lot of people who've been watching Garbrandt have thought is there isn't analytically anything you need to like point out as far as like things he does bad, physical attributes wise to also technical skill wise. He's like incredible, right? So it's not like he had all these flaws in his game. I think with him, it seemed more of an issue with his mindset. He would lose his composure. He would get angry in a fight and then just throw away everything he knows. And even misuse his abilities and so in this fight he didn't do that yeah he looked really good i did notice and i'm sure you noticed this too that he was fighting a lot more from the outside than he normally did even in you know his fights where it was classic cody and uh there's no way to know whether that was all from training with his new team and mark henry or it was just from getting knocked out in his last three fights and he was just more tentative of being in close range now. Yeah. But definitely there was that change in his range where he was fighting from further out than he normally does. And yeah, I mean, he did get knocked out three times. Yeah, I definitely think it's a bit of both. I think uh, he had a little bit of a wake-up call and uh, you know, kind of got more disciplined. And he was also able to find in Mark Henry a coach who can kind of play to his strengths and uh, someone that he trusts and uh, can can make you know good reads for him um, when he's uh, you know maybe not always able to do that himself. Yeah, I also really liked uh, his kind of super low level change to low leg kick that he was throwing out there that just looked uh, really fun. I don't know that I've seen any other fighters doing that. Yeah, he was like actually level changing and he actually went for takedowns this fight, which he normally never does. Yeah, it was really interesting the way he was he was almost like fainting a takedown and then throwing like a karate kid sweep the leg sort of thing. So, using a shot to set up a low low kick, I don't think I've seen that before cuz usually when you do that, you use that to set up like an overhand or some kind of punching technique, but not some low, low kick. <laughs> you wouldn't think to use the wrestling shot to set up your kick, but he was doing it and it was really effective actually. It was, it looked like really hard shots and, you know, I'm sure he could turn it into a, a, a wrestling shot if the situation presented itself. I think it might be one of those moves now that other fighters have seen it, that it becomes more common. You know, that's the same thing that happened with the low, low kick is, it was a lot of people from the MMA lab started using it. And then once like their highest profile fighter, Benson Henderson was using it in his title fights. People were like, oh, I should do that too. Yeah. Uh, it also kind of reminds me of um, a new trend you see in jujitsu now where people are wrestling up from a seated guard 
or uh, taking kind of like a really, really low stance. You see, saw uh, Nick Rodriguez do that a few times in ADCC where he'd get all the way down into like a complete squat, but like with one knee down where he could potentially just, you know, blast into you um, or, you know, sit to a guard if he needed. Now, one observation I had, I'd credit this to Mark Henry, is that Cody Garbrandt looked a lot more like Frankie Edgar in this fight where he was circling a lot the way Frankie does. And normally Cody really sits down, like not just when he punches, his stance is kind of lower because he wants to load up on his hooks. His height difference between Az and Sao shouldn't be that great. Like I think they might be even the same height, but he looked taller than Az and Sao because Az and Sao was fighting in his typical lower stance. And uh, Cody was standing so much more upright, like I said, like Frankie Edgar does, which I think gave him a lot more mobility to circle, fight on the outside, and be more in and out. And so I think that's classic Mark Henry. Yeah, I really liked his movement in this. Now let's talk about Asun Sao a little bit because, I mean, I've been a fan of his for a long time. Not just because he's good, but he's kind of like um, like that movie, The Bad News Bears, where it's like the lovable loser where he just can't quite get there to that title fight. He is probably the best bantamweight to never fight for the title. And He's also had two competitive fights with TJ Dillashaw. He also has a win over Marlon Moraes. He actually has a lot of wins, but he hasn't been looking too good lately. And I think for Azun Sao, a lot of that is something he didn't used to do in the past is now he's chasing people, but he's like chasing them and then just waiting there. And then they'll faint him and then he'll bite on the feints. And then from there, that's where the bad things happen, where he got knocked out in this fight. He loses the decision. He gets hurt and uh, and choked out by Mariah. So it is interesting to see a veteran over time fall into bad habits that they didn't have previously. And I think kind of like Cody, where if you lose, you start doubting yourself a little bit. So you make a stylistic change or you react in ways that you normally wouldn't do, which is like with Cody, he fights further out, which is actually a good improvement. I think with Azun Sao, he has the opposite where he's overreacting because of the way he lost. So he's like overreacting to feints too much because those losses are in the back of his mind. So it'll be interesting if he improves from this fight or this is like the start of his downward skid where maybe physically uh, he hasn't deteriorated, but just as far as his confidence in the fight, it's not the same anymore. Yeah, at that level, it's really hard to say... uh you know, how much adjustments you should make after a loss. Um, you know, when you're kind of just starting out, you're really learning where your holes are. But when you get up and up and up, the the differences are usually, you know, less and less uh, between the fighters. So if you try to make a radical change after uh, something to compensate for something, you might be losing some of the things you were doing well before. But the flip side of that is, you know, you'll see someone like Ben Askren comment on that and say, why would I change up what I'm doing just because I got knocked out once? And then, <laughs> yeah. Now let's talk about the main event with champion Amanda Nunes defending her featherweight title for the first time against Felicia Spencer, which ended up being a dominant decision victory for Nunes. And unlike some of the other fights we talked about, we have more minutes to analyze and a lot of it was actually contested on the ground, right? So that's like your wheelhouse. So I'm laughing because it was so dominant, but 
could you walk us through the fight? <laughs> it was interesting because like it, it just was kind of the the same thing round after round. It was rinse and repeat. Yeah. Uh Nunez was just highly dominant uh with the striking. Spencer uh you know, tried to kind of take it to the ground. I think uh, the commentators were saying that maybe that's where she would have some kind of an edge, um, citing her, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. But Nunez is also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and she's a, a judo brown belt, which came out, uh, you know, really abundantly in those times where Spencer did try to take her down. Every single, I think every single takedown attempt that uh, Spencer put out there, Amanda shut down or often reversed. You know, Amanda wasn't really trying to take Spencer down, but there was opportunities. And there was a couple ones where she would literally just chuck her to the ground and then wait for Spencer to get back up. Um, I think that was maybe um, the only thing that, uh, well, one of the only things that disappointed me about the fight, but probably the only thing that I would say in Amanda's performance that I uh, wasn't super thrilled about was her hesitancy to go to the ground. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously that was because she knew that she had the ability to finish it on the feet pretty easily. Um, but I would have liked to have seen her um, kind of maybe put a little bit more of a statement on that, especially after four rounds of the the beating that she put on Spencer. I think there's this bias where if you specialize in one thing, like you are really good at this one thing, even though you're an overall MMA fighter, this is your wheelhouse, right? So for Spencer, it's, it's the ground, it's the jiu-jitsu. Then there's this bias then that the specialist is better at their one thing than the well-rounded fighter. And the reason why I call that a bias is because maybe Spencer's best thing is Brazilian jiu-jitsu and being on the ground, but her best thing is still not better than Amanda's abilities on the ground. I think maybe Amanda might be even better than her on the ground. So your best thing is still worse than the champion's second best thing. For sure. So then what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a difficult uh, conundrum there. She didn't have the striking in order to mix it up into the entries and the takedowns that she needed to get on the ground on her own terms. I think Spencer did do a pretty good job when she was on the ground, uh, and maybe Amanda felt that, and that's why she didn't... Uh, continue to try to pursue that. Spencer did do a, a pretty good job a couple times recovering guard um, and keeping herself safe. Um, but there really wasn't, um, you know, much of a, a threat there even uh, when she was there. If you watch Amanda Nunes versus Jermaine Durandamy, Jermaine Durandamy is not a specialist on the ground. But there were several times where Durandamy almost got a submission on Nunes, whereas in this fight, Spencer didn't come anywhere close. Yeah, and I mean, you're definitely right about the you know specialist thing not being necessarily as good as someone who's better at mixing them all together. Uh, you know, you might be really, really good at grappling, but if you're not really, really, really good at grappling when someone's striking you um, or you know getting it there under those conditions. Uh, it it doesn't do you the same uh, amount of it doesn't doesn't go as far as you know you'd like it to. Yeah, I think with Jermaine Durandamy, right? If she were to just roll with Felicia Spencer, just pure jiu-jitsu, I'm sure she would get clobbered. But in that fight, because she is a striker and has fought a lot of MMA, 
I think she had a composure when she was getting hit in the face by Nunes to be like, okay, I'm getting hit, but I can absorb this and stay calm to try to set up an arm bar or whatever. Whereas I think with Spencer, because she has trained jujitsu so much, her instinct was to go straight away to defensive grappling, which is like recover, get full guard, create space, whatever. It's more thinking like that instead of sacrifice taking the hits to try to set up a submission. Yeah. And we saw kind of a similar thing with, uh, with Chase Hooper. Yeah. Chase Hooper, uh, earlier, you know, trying to, trying to jump a closed guard, like, you know, that doesn't work very often. You know, you need a lot, uh, more integrated ways to, to get it to the ground than that. Uh, and even if you are successful being offensive from that position is it takes a whole bunch of extra steps. Now, were you okay with this fight going all five rounds or would you have been okay if it got stopped somewhere before? I definitely would have liked to have seen it stopped, uh, if not earlier, certainly between rounds four and five. I don't know uh, what the judges were looking at uh, with the the lack of 10-8 rounds that uh, ended up in the scorecards. Uh, and I know that that's not like a necessarily a... Uh, uh, a reason to stop a fight but um yeah i really wish that uh there was incentive for corners and fighters to prioritize their longevity over this like warrior spirit or whatever the fuck <laughs> it is <laughs> i know it's like you don't kill yourself for a company that isn't even going to take care of your health care you know yeah it's ridiculous i think even amanda didn't know Felicia Spencer's real age. That's why she was giving her this talk that you're real young and you're going to have the championship one day. That's why she even said, do you want to hold the belt? But what she was trying to say is because you're young in the game, you're a young person, one day you'll be champion. But looking up Felicia Spencer online, she's actually not that young. She's 29. I mean, that's young as far as like regular life goes, yeah. but as far as MMA, that's not young, especially if you're not like a heavyweight. You could be 29 and young as a heavyweight, but any division below heavyweight, 29, it basically means you're a, a fully developed fighter. Yeah. You know, like you were mentioning before, at this level of the game, and especially at 29 and already having skill sets you're good at, you don't want to, and you shouldn't overhaul your whole fighting system, your whole style. So do you think there are some areas that needs addressing for Spencer that could help her going forward? I mean, I, I did watch the Cyborg fight. <laughs> which was a lot of the yeah, same basically the same thing um it's it's hard to say something that she could add technically um but i think just being a little bit more uh confident in throwing out a combination of things and keeping it going uh even against uh that pressure you could see her kind of um freezing and retreating a lot of times where uh you know nunez was just doing her thing and i understand right if someone can advance on you and counter punch you it's very difficult to you know throw out things even feints but you just have to do it otherwise you're going to get so outworked like that that there's no chance to to add anything in there yeah she kind of reminds me of Anthony Smith, not in skill set, but as far as like just talking about the psychology of fighting, because I think for broadcasters and even for fans and people online and even analysts, 
we don't really analyze what toughness means. We just say because she lasted so long and she took so much punishment, like Lionheart can take so much punishment, they're automatically tough, which they are. But I think there's a difference between toughness and confidence. So I think in both of those fighters, you have somebody who's extremely tough, can take a lot of punishment and not quit, will be there to the very end, while at the same time that they're being tough throughout the fight, show some lack of confidence. Like, I want to prove something to myself, a moral victory that I could last to the end, but I'm not quite sure if I trust in my hands or in my abilities or should I really attack or not? I don't know. You know, like almost like an imposter syndrome. Like if I try something, what if I look stupid or what if it doesn't work or what if they really are better than me, but I'm going to last to the end and I'm not going to quit on myself. There are definitely fighters who are tough and also confident, like Justin Gaethje, where to the very end, not only is he tough, but he believes in himself. Whereas I would say with certain fighters, like Felicia Spencer, it seemed like she has the toughness without that confidence. Yeah, she's definitely durable. Yeah. But yeah, you need you need options, uh, things that you've trained uh, that you use when things aren't going your way. And I think a lot of people just train, you know, your A game or you know, whatever it is that you want to do uh, to the other person. But you need to also have a lot of training and experience for what happens when those things go wrong. And if you don't have something that you can pull out in those uh, other kinds of situations, you're going to end up, you know, just kind of frozen. Yeah, I think one of the most ironic moments in the whole fight is when she's getting beat up, they should actually throw in the towel, but her corner doesn't. And so that's why, because they didn't throw in the towel, I feel okay in kind of criticizing them. But they said to her, okay, now remember the game plan. You got to stick to the game plan. So instead of throwing in the towel, they send her out there telling her to remember the game plan. And I'm like, what is the game plan here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to switch it up. You got to do something different. <laughs> yeah. Because her sticking with her game plan isn't working. So why do you still believe it's working? Yeah. And that's where having you know coaches who can make those uh, very quick reads during those high pressure rounds uh, and communicate them to you uh, are, are really an advantage. Now for Amanda Nunez. What would you like to see for her next? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know. She's she's done uh you know basically everything she can do in the UFC. She could certainly make a bunch more money in boxing uh if she went there uh and she definitely has the hands for it. I think if you really like Amanda, if you're a big fan of hers, you just want her to get a big payday now. Yeah. Her legacy is set. There's nothing left for her to prove. But I think for this fight, I don't think she came anywhere near a million dollar purse. And you see fighters in boxing who are not nearly as notable as far as like celebrity or well known as Amanda, who are making two times, three times, four times, like 10 times, 12 times more money than her. And so it's kind of sad that she's the greatest of all time, yet she's not being paid like the greatest of all time. You know, you mentioned the boxing. I think a lot of us now, we don't need to see her in MMA anymore. If she does, great. I mean, I'll watch her, but we don't need her to prove anything to us anymore, I should say. So I would love to see a huge payday fight for actually both fighters, her and Clarissa Shields. I think that could set a record for women's boxing. I think that could be bigger than the UFC. That could just be something that goes down in the history of just combat sports, period. Yeah, that would be great. And 
how amazing would that be for someone to start out in, uh, you know, grappling a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, goes into the UFC, becomes a ridiculously amazing striker, and then goes into, you know, pure striking to finish out her career. That is a good point, because if you watch her early fights, she was not a striker. She was a grappler. Not at all, yeah. So how quickly she developed her striking and to the point where she was just better than Cyborg. So, and Cyborg's gone out and done professional kickboxing and Muay Thai. So, you know, to see Amanda go out and do boxing, I mean, that would really set her legacy now where it wouldn't be just a UFC legacy, but just like her own legacy. Yeah, that's really, you know, one of the only things that I think Shevchenko has uh, on her that... uh you know, continues to to keep her kind of in that conversation is her you know, kickboxing championships. And if uh, Amanda goes in and does something like that in a striking art like boxing, uh, just further, further solidifies her as the greatest of all time. So now we've had several UFC events without an audience. How is that experience? How have you liked these fights? I've liked them a lot. Um, I definitely think that the audience can, you know, add uh, some of an, an excitement factor. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I think for me personally, as a viewer, the, the presence or lack of an audience doesn't make a huge difference. Um, but where I think it makes a really big difference is just in the quality of the fights. Um, when the fighters can hear their corners and hear what they're saying and, uh, you know, maybe, you know, they're able to keep a little bit calmer, in those environments, it just results in better fights, which you know is a lot more viewer friendly in the in the end. You bring up a good point. The technical skill of all these fights have gone up. Like even the prelim fighters, they just all look more technical. And I think it's because they're not like what we were talking about earlier as far as competition mindset. They're not as distracted by this idea that people are watching them, and also they could hear their coaches. Yeah, yeah, it makes a big difference. I, I'm I'm really enjoying it. And then, you know, you also have uh, commentators coming in as assistant coaches from time to time. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think Joe Rogan is that helpful because I don't think he knows anything. (laughs) And to another point, he's called out the Japanese necktie. Like, I don't know how many times he said it's coming and it's never come. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, he's not going to be a help. But sometimes like DC will give really poignant tips. And so I think for sure that really does (laughs) help fighters who can hear him because he knows what he's talking about. Can you imagine Dominic Cruz commentating on a card and you can hear every word he says? He's amazing as commentator unless it's like one of his own fighters. If it's like somebody from his team, he's like completely biased, you know? Yeah. For my own part, I I actually am not neutral about no audience. I actually prefer it. It is less distracting for me. I could actually just pay attention to the fight more. The only time I missed it is like the Cody Garbrandt knockout or the Sean O'Malley knockout where you wanted that one punch knockout to be followed by like this roar from the crowd. That was like the only time where I was like, you know, those knockouts like deserve a roar, but it didn't get that, you know? They need a roar track to play. <laughs> yeah, because it was like, whoa, this like amazing <laughs> walk away knockout, but it was like to crickets, you know? Yeah. So that was the only time I, I found myself like, oh, okay, that's what the crowd is for, to kind of put a highlight on those moments, you know? Yeah, for sure. Now, we mentioned this previously. Do you like the smaller cage or are you ambivalent to it or would you rather see them back in the big cage? Um, probably somewhere between ambivalent to liking it. Um, I think it's interesting in the way that it shapes the fights. 
Um, I, I like seeing variations uh, in the structures of, of different uh, rule sets and environments and, and things like that. It, so I think it, it adds a, a new depth of things to compare to. Um, I would say it, I do think that the fights are more exciting and you see a more variety of action happening in them. So if they keep it, I'm certainly on board. Um, but I think the, the main value in it, uh, for me as someone who's trying to like learn from, uh, watching fights is in comparing it to what things looked like before and how that, uh, changes strategies, uh, who it favors, who it doesn't. Um, and we're still kind of accumulating that data, but it's, it's been really cool. Yeah, it does kind of give it a fighting in a phone booth vibe. For sure. I would really like to, um, you know, I always like to see him fight, but uh, I'd be really interested to see uh, how someone like Ryan Hall adapts his style to uh, a much smaller environment. Because he is such a submission specialist, I think it's really hard for him to fight because nobody wants to fight him. And I think the UFC isn't like peer pressuring fighters to take a fight with him either. So he's like in a weird place. Yeah, and his his uh his striking comes from really really far away. He really likes uh you know head kicks, spinning uh, side kicks and stuff. Uh, so for him to go up against someone uh you know is a, a different weight class, but someone like Aljamain Sterling who would just put a ton of pressure on him really fast, I'd be interested to see uh, what he does when he can't uh, run away or you know maybe not have as much room to roll. Hopefully we'll see him soon. I think he averages one fight every two years. So, <laughs> Yeah, something like that. All right. Well, this was fun, Jackie. Now, tell us about how people can support your work. Um, so they can, uh, I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash queer self-defense. Um, they can sign up there for any range of things to donate and support uh, the work that I'm doing. Um uh, for the months of June and May, I'm donating uh, everything I'm getting from that, uh, as well as some more personal funds from my day job to uh, George uh, Floyd Memorial Fund, uh, bail funds, um, street medics, uh, whatever's coming across uh, my feed that seems like it needs attention right now. Awesome. Then I'll put all of that in the show notes. All right. Thank you, Jackie. Appreciate it, Sam. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.